I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how you doing, listeners? Adam Buxton here. Uh, now, I don't know if you can hear, but I am not in East Anglia. Take a listen. Not many clues there. But uh, I'm out in Los Angeles, America, to record a few podcasts and to gift the Bug Bowie special to a theatre full of homesick Brits and a few adventurous Americans tonight. Uh, I've been here a few days now, still a little bit jet-lagged, so I woke up early this morning and rather than record this intro in my uh, little room that I'm renting in Franklin Village, I thought I would take the walk up the dusty track to the Griffith Park Observatory in the hills above. It's not too far from where I'm staying, actually. It's just behind. So it's about a 45-minute walk. Griffith Park Observatory, of course, famous Hollywood landmark. 63 years ago, James Dean was shuffling about up there as he filmed an iconic scene from Rebel Without a Cause. And since then, of course, many, many of my favourite films have used the observatory as a location. Who could forget The Rocketeer? Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle, Transformers, The Terminator, Terminator Salvation, Terminator Genesis, La La Land, and of course, and most importantly, Sandy Wexler, starring Adam Sandler. Thanks very much, Ken Corder. Once you're at the top of the hill at the observatory, you can look out over the whole of Los Angeles. It's a spectacular view and see the city sprawling, shrouded in a haze of pollution and dreams. It's a very humbling sight. But right now where I am, it's uh, totally deserted walking up this track. There's no one around at all. It's like one of the locations that they might have used in the old Star Trek TV series. You expect to see a young William Shatner jumping out from behind some scrub to uh, have a fist fight with a bloke in a suit. But um, it's lovely. I do like LA, but every time I come here, I hate the journey more and more. And there's always a point in that 11-hour flight from London when I'm just rocking back and forth in my seat (laughs) like a mad guy, unable to get comfortable, scrolling joylessly through the entertainment system and thinking I am never ever going on a long-distance flight again. It's just not worth it. And, you know, that's before you even get to L.A. and have to negotiate the dehumanising processing shed that is LAX airport. I guess I wouldn't do too well as a refugee. He says, segueing glibly into a short introduction to this week's podcast guest, Hassan Akkad. Now, you may have seen Hassan 
on the 2016 BBC documentary Exodus, Our Journey to Europe. And in that programme, they gave cameras to a handful of the million or so people who smuggled themselves into Europe during the peak of the immigration crisis in 2015, which at that point had been exacerbated by the conflict in Syria, where Hassan travelled from. Um, Hassan was an asylum seeker, but of course there were many uh, people who were economic migrants just trying to find a better way of life in Europe. And there was, I guess, the odd Islamic State militant trying to pass as a refugee or a migrant. And the crisis, which of course hasn't ended, led to some European countries feeling overwhelmed and besieged by this influx of strangers. And we know that it played a part in Britain voting to leave Europe and it contributed to the deep divisions in British society that some of us had been happy to ignore before Brexit. Um, And we don't go too deeply into the rights and wrongs of mass immigration in this conversation. Instead, you'll hear the fascinating story of why and how Hassan came to make the journey to Europe. And you'll get a more intimate perspective on the immigration crisis as a whole. It's just one person's perspective. But it's an amazing story. And stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a little bit more information on the app that Hassan mentions towards the end of the uh, chat, Timepiece, which as I speak is just weeks away from launching and which hopes to make it easier for refugees to integrate by exchanging skills and experience with anyone who'd like to help. If, like me, you've ever felt bad about not doing more to help refugees, then Timepiece, the app, might at least be a good place to start. Anyway, right now, Hassan Akkad. Here we go. since you left it's been no uh, i left syria in late 2012 it's ah, been okay. five years right yeah yeah, yeah yeah can you remember the last day before you left damascus that you had just a great day a really fun evening what was the last happy memory you have of being there the last happy memory of me being back home is actually way back i left damascus it was before the revolution started and i remember sitting with my family around a dinner table my dad just came back from work. My sisters came back from school. My mom just made this amazing Syrian feast and we were having dinner and just talking about our days and there was an amazing sense of normality, which I quite miss right now. And what was your father's job out there? 
my dad, he had a, a pizza place. He used to make pizza. Uh-huh. I was an English teacher. My brother was a banker. My sister used to work in sales. My two other sisters went to school. They were still students. And my mom didn't do anything. She used to work in a bank, but then she quit after she married my dad. So you were kind of a typical middle class yeah, yeah, yeah. family out there. Yeah, very yeah. typical, very middle class. <laughs> and, I mean, you're a filmmaker, right? Now I am a filmmaker and a photographer. Yeah. Yeah. But you do spend a lot of time talking about your experience. and. Uh, yeah. I uh, Since I arrived here, I arrived here, it will be two years in September yeah. since I arrived in England. And I've when I got here, I noticed that there was a lack of first-hand experience of what's it like to to flee a war to a country and do the do the journey through Europe. So I noticed, uh, and I'm, because I was a teacher back home and I've got the, the, the skill of addressing a crowd, I started speaking at pubs and churches and mosques and colleges and fundraisers. And it was, yeah, it went from one place to another. Literally, there was a time when I was doing a talk every day in London or around the country. And did you get that thing that a lot of performers get <laughs> of starting to grow tired of your own stories? Absolutely. And, yeah. yeah. It fed on my survival's guilt because I do have, I suffer from survival's guilt every day. Every time I have a good time, I feel guilty because many of my friends, they've died and I'm here enjoying my time while they are still in prison or they're, they're, they're dead. So when I am on a stage and like I get a standing ovation sometime or when I have people coming and tell me, oh my God, you're great, you're amazing, we love you, I feel bad. I don't feel good. I appreciate their, uh, that they're reaching out to me and telling me that I did well. But deep down, I feel guilty for, for that. I mean... Obviously, it's it's a subject that grips people across the world. It's really one of the most important things going on today. And no one has a clear sense of how things will develop and what this means for our society and how, you know, in 20 years' time, will we look back at this time and and shake our heads and think, boy, we shouldn't have worried about that stuff and we should mm. have worried more about this stuff and mm. it'll be so clear to us. But right now, everything seems totally up in the air. It's a really strange time and how have you overall what's it been like for you being over here and what kind of reactions have you got from people have they been largely positive or people have been largely positive for a fact especially in london something i noticed firsthand that there was a lot of there was a lot of misconceptions uh i remember doing a talk at university and someone asked me why do syrians have smartphones and I, and, and coming from university student i noticed that there is a lack of, of knowledge of, of people coming from outside of Europe, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I, I've, I've, not, I've noticed that someone has to fill that up. Someone has to come and not even necessarily talk about wars in the Middle East or like other parts of the world, but also talk about what was life. I really appreciate your question. How was like a normal life in Damascus like? And I've, that's what I've done. Like, let me tell you what Syria was before the war. Let me tell you what music we used to listen to, what films we used to watch, what we used to do in our free time and I'll do on weekends because that brings people together and it builds a bridge because I once shared my playlist with, with like, a, like a group of people and I was doing a talk and they were like, oh, these are like my, best, my favorite songs. And immediately there was this contact, people connected, you know what I mean? Mm. On music and films and art and history. Yeah, we are. I mean, you know, obviously people all over the globe are now so closely connected thanks to the internet. Yeah. And our experiences are shared in so many ways. But then in other ways, we can't possibly imagine what it's like out there. And it's not as if we can even choose to go and visit, really. No, no, it's <laughs> difficult to imagine what it's like to be. Yeah. I mean, S- Syria is probably the most documented crisis in the history, thanks to social media and internet and smartphones. 
But still, there's a lot of there was a lot of like what was actually going on. People did not know. People got lost. I myself, I am lost. So to have someone to come and tell you what's it actually like to live in a police state mm. and what's it like when you go out and you uh, protest or you ask for your rights, what what are the consequences? What's it like to to leave your country to go on a dinghy? How do you feel? What do you pack? What, what do you say to your family? All questions I'm going to be asking you. <laughs> um, as you say, you know, it's hard to keep up with it. I think probably very few people have a clear sense mm. of what's going on and what the timeline has been. There are so many interweaving mm. narratives that have brought us to this point in the mm. Middle East. Mm. What was your, I mean, you've already said, you know, you, you had in some ways a quite a normal life that us Brits can relate to, middle class life out there. But then how was life different for you day to day? What were the things that were jarringly different to a typical day here in the UK, for example? Because we come from very family-oriented cultures, a family is a very important element in your life. Like, we don't just go in Christmas to see our parents. <laughs> we see them every day. And it's because Damascus is such a quite tight culture, you literally know everyone. Like, as I'm walking in the streets of Damascus, I still remember every one minute I meet someone I know and we just have a chat and we talk about our days. How big is Damascus? Damascus is, I don't have, I mean, I don't know exactly how big it is, but I still remember like it would take me like an hour to drive around, like more than like two hours maybe to drive around the city. Uh-huh. It's the capital, it's the oldest city in the world. It's got so much culture, so much history. The old city of Damascus has got a wall around it and it's uh, still intact. It's like very, very old. And uh, lots of foreigners, uh, lots of um, tourists used to come and stay there. Because they get in, they fall in love with the city, mm-hmm. and that's what I miss. I I do miss the you know when things are form like uh, how you are like uh, used to things, whether it's people or places or restaurants or even like the weather. <laughs> I'm used to this. This is like um it's formality of it, but then that's it's a bit difficult when you are plucked out of that and put in somewhere completely different. Because yeah. the, the UK is completely different to yeah. Syria. But it's, it's, it takes time. It's been two years, but I'm still integrating. Yes. I mean, I already speak English and I'm already liberal and I'm already educated. And, but still, t- it takes time to integrate. Uh-huh. Of course. Hmm. Damascus, ISIS were never in Damascus, were they? Countryside. The, the, so I'm going to give you an example, all right? Yeah. Say, for example, um, Marlebone, all right? Yeah. yeah. That's a government-held area. You would have Brixton, for example, and Ealing... And Oxbridge would be like Free Syrian Army, and you would have Hackney uh, ISIS. <laughs> this is the best way that I can yeah. because the- if you've just tuned in, <laughs> this isn't actually what. <laughs> no, it's not happening in London. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I mean, from my let me also give you like an idea. In the middle of Damascus, there is a mountain that overlooks the whole city. We call it like the Shield of Damascus. It's called Qasiyun Mountain. And I still remember before the war, we would drive up the mountain, watch the sunset. And it's just amazing hearing the call of prayer coming from all the mosques and this this amazing chaos that you can see from the top of the mountain. My flat, where I used to live, the balcony, overlooks the whole city and it overlooks the mountain. From my balcony, I still remember that when the, the rebels started taking control of parts of the countryside of Damascus, I could see rocket launches, launching rockets and bo- like shells from the mountain and I see them like landing somewhere and I knew by every bombing there's someone dying I knew that by every bombing there's someone's house someone's memories and dreams are being vanished what year is that then that was 2011 late 2011 
how did that feel? Watching it's, that, realizing it's, that it's, war was coming to your it, doorstep. It, it's it's appalling and it's it's really depressing. I still can't get over it because we have to also acknowledge the fact that this wasn't a war with a, an external force. This is us fighting each other. This is our army. I mean, irrespective of what people think politically of what's going on in Syria, for me, this is like our army bombing our cities. And this is the army that we've paid money for and we built and we, a lot of people like go to the army, uh, mandatory military service. To see that, to see, to see, to witness where you grew up and where like your memories and your dreams, to see that being destroyed on a daily basis and people's lives are being lost on a daily basis. It's depressing. I didn't feel safe anymore. I was like any day, it, by mistake, a rocket could hit my balcony and I could be gone. So you lose that old sense of safety and you flee. And you and your family and your friends, where were your sympathies politically? Who were you? P- politically, everyone from my friends, most of them, we were against uh, the regime. We are still against the regime. Assad. Assad regime. My parents, my siblings, they were against the regime. Most, some of my uncles and my cousins, no, they were like they still are pro Assad. And they, what was their argument? They, they were saying he he's not so bad. At least he's exactly their argument is like what, look what happened in Libya. Their argument is all right. We know that we know that the Assad regime for the last four decades has been committing atrocities in Syria, doing awful things. It's like a dictatorship. It's like North Korea. We know that's happening, but at least he's keeping us safe. But that's a selfish argument you know what i mean because all right you're safe and you're making money i was i was 22 i was 22 years old making around 2000 pounds in damascus which is like a fortune but i'm i'm like the 1% there are a lot of people who used to eat from the from the rubbish bins there are a lot of people who literally couldn't make like ends meet they they were barely surviving and there were a lot of people vanishing there was this thing when we say that some, someone said something against the government, they literally vanish. They're gone. You, don't, you never hear of them again. So no, I, I want to challenge that. Mm-hmm. I want to go on the streets and I want to ask for my rights. Like when I f- went on my first protest, I literally said, I chanted freedom, equality, liberty, democracy. The things that are taken for granted here, but they don't exist in Syria. Literally, they, until now, they don't exist. And that's what we asked for. You talked about the idea of people being disappeared if they dissented mm-hmm. or said anything negative about the Assad regime. So how did you feel then going on a protest? How did that work? I mean, um, didn't you think... The first protest, yeah. Like when I was in the protest and we were walking, I still remember, to, uh, in the old city in, in Hamidiya. It's, it's a very famous uh, souk. It's called Hamidiya souk. Everyone knows it. Uh, we were walking in that souk and we were, I was looking at people around me and we were all like chanting together, freedom, liberty, equality. And for the first time, I felt like I heard my voice. In the first, I've, for the first time, I've heard like I have a voice. I heard it. I can hear my voice. I exist. I literally felt my existence in that protest. And I was so happy. I've never been happier. I am a human. <laughs> I'm asking for my rights. But the, the longest protests in downtown Damascus would last like 15 minutes. And then you have buses of Secret Service coming to arrest everybody. So the longest protest is like 10, 15 minutes, and then you have to run for your life. You run for your life because if you get arrested... You get arrested, <laughs> it's not good news. Presumably people you knew did get arrested. Though. I got arrested myself. Yeah. After that first protest, like two months or three months later, I was, we organized a protest on the other side of uh, Damascus. We organized it on Facebook, by the way, like Facebook groups. We set up like with fake names, we set up a location, we go and we protest. But uh, things didn't go so well. The, the, the police knew about it. 
And as soon as we started, they surrounded us. It was like 300 of us, but a lot of people managed to escape. Eight people and myself, we got arrested in the protest. And we were rushed. We were... Uh, the first half an hour was just beating the hell out of you. They were beating the hell out of us using iron poles. And that's at the location of the protest. That's the it? location of the protest, yeah. That's the government secret police, yeah. uh, fully armed. Um, and they have iron poles. They, arrest, they, they caught us, they, they surrounded us, and they... Yeah, we were being beaten for like half an hour. And do they say anything while they're doing it? Yes. Do they say, hey? Yeah, I still remember it. Uh, what, I w- what they were saying is like, you want freedom, right? Dish. Uh, you're working for the Israelis, right? Dish. This is what you get for working for America. Dish. You are a traitor. Dish. And you're like, why am I... <laughs> That's the thing with like the dictatorship mentalities is that if you are seeking to fix your country, if you're seeking to get freedom, you are immediately a traitor, an enemy. You're working for the Israelis. You're working for the Americans. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I've never been to America. I can technically never go to Israel. But I'm being beaten up, being accused of working with them. Mm-hmm. I'm just 24 years old who wants to change the, the, the political system in this country. That was my crime. And then you get put in a van? We got beaten up very badly. Both of my arms were broken as we were uh, in that time, that time during that beating session. They broke my ribs. And like my face was swollen and they put eight of us in a, in a boot of a four wheel car, like literally stacked us on top of each other. And they in rushed. In a boot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a boot of a, of a, of of a like four, a four wheeler. An SUV. SUV, right. Yeah. So they stacked us on top of each other and then rushed us to, it's called 215. It's like military secret police. Damascus, it's full, like all of Syria. It's like there are always secret police stations because they run the country technically. So they rushed us to that one. And, um, yeah, it stripped us out of our clothes and out of our humanity. You literally, you don't feel human anymore. <sighs> Once you get over the sense of shock, you immediately feel, you don't feel like a human anymore. You feel subhuman because you are treated like we, we were given numbers. So I don't even, I don't remember what my number was, but I was like maybe number 14. So I was no longer Hassan Akkad. I was 14. I was naked and I was being referred to as a number. And then we got thrown in a cell prison cell and what are you thinking are you thinking okay, i'm thinking why keep me here for a while <laughs> but practically speaking uh, practically speaking i'm thinking i'm gonna because all we heard growing up is that people disappear when they do some when they go against the government practically sp- speaking i thought that i'm never gonna see daylight anymore and the cell right next to mine there were two men who were there for 23 years so technically in my mind i'm like that's it life is over but were you panicking i mean i, I, I can't <laughs> imagine what i was destroyed like. adam it's worse than death. It's worse than immediate death. So if I got shot in that protest, you know, it's gone. But that's like a very slow method of torture. Mm-hmm. Because A, you don't know if you're ever going to be released. B, my parents, whom I really care about, my family, they never get told where I am. So I know, technically I know where I am. I know I'm still alive. But my parents, they probably think I'm dead. And that also another me- way of mental torture and was there anyone with you who had been through the experience before? No, who, who no, no, no. We're all, we're, we're, we're all our generation, basically. We're like we're, we're all youngsters. We're like 23, yeah. 24. We're, we're fresh graduates. We are not used to this. We see it in films. Yeah. <laughs> I saw it in films that talk about Nazi Germany. And then suddenly we are experiencing it for real. And you literally for the, for the first 48 hours... You cannot process it and you, you, you seem to reject that you are in that place. 
because it is so horrendous, your mind cannot accept it. And what about your injuries? Was anyone seeing to those? No, no one. My arms got really swollen. Uh, my leg, I got electrocuted in my leg. They electrocuted me in my leg, so it was... Um, With like a prod or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was inter- like a b- internal bleeding, and my ribs were broken. So three days later, they uh, put a bin bag over my head, and they took me to a also a police hospital, mm-hmm. where they... Uh, <laughs> So get this, all right? So it's not just the jailers, it's not just the police, even the doctors. I couldn't see anything, but even the doctors started beating me on my broken arms. Oh. So you're like, you would try to accept it from a police officer. Yeah. But from a doctor who was supposed to be treating me, he, he wanted to x-ray my arm and I couldn't see. I, I don't know. And I'm in shock. I don't know where I am. I'm, I lost sense of place and time. So he was like, just put it here. And then he beat me on it, smashed it again. And then they were like... Oh, we need to see your leg. And I can't, again, I can't see anything. I can only hear voices. Yeah. And then they, he rolled my jeans up and, and he was like, oh my God, no, 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 no. This needs to get amputated. And he was like, uh, Hadi, something, get the amputation tools. Oh man, and I'm, and that's I'm, not what you want to hear. And I'm, I'm in my mind, I was, I used to run marathons. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> Forrest Gump was my favorite film. <laughs> yeah. I'm a runner. <laughs> and I, all I can remember, it was like me begging I was like, let's just stop and talk about this. And then he was like, no, 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 this needs to be removed. It's gone. And um, I started like just with my broken arms, just beating everything around me and trying to stop this, trying to stop this from happening. And then, and they were like, oh, we're joking. No, it's fine. We're just going to give you some painkillers. Oh, it's a classic joke. And I'm like, thanks. <laughs> oh my God. I was only in that prison cell for two weeks, by the way. Yeah. But I lost 14 kilos. Uh-huh. And I left. The doctor who operated my leg said, if you had stayed there for another week, you would have lost your leg. So when you got out, yeah, straight to hospital, straight to hospital. hospital, straight to proper hospital, remove the cast, put proper casts, surgery. Uh, and I what w- did the doctors at that hospital say? Do they do they I- can't say anything, right? They, you can see that their hearts are weeping for you. Yeah, yeah. But if they, they probably, but they are it. worried. They say on what, what a ward, and someone would hear them, and then they would end up in that prison's cell. Right. So you don't get into it with yeah. them. No, yeah. it's 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 fear, fear everywhere. And that's their way. I was admitted in that prison cell. And they released me as a sample. And it's like a lesson. You go in a protest, this is what's going to happen to you. <laughs> Three months later, I got in prison again. <laughs> yeah. then did things start to get so bad that you felt that you had to leave so after the second the second time i was I, I was taken to prison they were like come for an investigation and they threw me in solitary confinement for two weeks and then they banned me from teaching and they made me sign documents that i am now a an informant working for the government and i have to report everything i see and i am banned from leaving the country without permission and i just couldn't live anymore i just i was afraid of my own bed I just, I, I was, I was scared. And I, presumably, you weren't up for fulfilling your role as an informant. No, absolutely not. I would never do that. And uh, I went and I got permission to go. I said I want to travel for twenty four hours to attend a friend's wedding and come back. They were like, okay, you're allowed twenty four hours. I left. I never been back. And I'm now black- blacklisted. I can never go back. And what was the 
what was the process of you actually leaving? Uh, and, and what did you say to your family? Or did you say anything to your family? I did say to my family, I'm gone. My, even my family, they were like, you have to leave. Uh-huh. My mom and dad, they've, by then, they've already gone through a lot. My mom, bless her, she almost died in the hospital when I was taken the second time. So it, for them, even, they were like, go. Just, because if you stayed, you, it was yeah. going to get worse. If, if I stayed, I wouldn't have been here. I wouldn't have been, been alive, for a fact. Yeah, I, yeah. I would have been dead a long time ago. And you have to, there's something that people need to understand is that literally there's nothing unique about my story. Like this is a story of thousands of people, specifically young men, because it was young men mostly that protested. It's not young men that are, it's mandatory for them to join the the, the military and fight and kill their own citizens, their own like uh, countrymen. So that's why it was mostly young men fleeing Syria. Right. I mean, it's such a, it's so mind-boggling. <laughs> what what was the process of figuring out how you were going to get away, where you were going to go? I left. I left. Uh, Adam, I I wanted to stay in the region because back then I still had hope that the crisis will be over soon. Mm-hmm. I thought. So you thought be, I'll get out of yeah, Damascus. Yeah, I'll right get out of Damascus. Of... I want to stay in the region. Right. I'll come back. It's going to be us who's going to be rebuild the country, and I will. Where stop. did you think you would go? Uh, I went to Lebanon uh-huh. for six months. We're very restricted, like uh, Syrians. Our, our travel options are very restricted. We need visas everywhere. So back then, now even like it's it's a lot harder than back than 2012. But back then, I could go to Lebanon. I went there for six months, and from working as a teacher and having my own car and having my own flat to working in McDonald's, and it was not, there's nothing wrong with working in McDonald's. But having left prison and I'm I'm not like it was really difficult to mm-hmm. to adapt. Yeah, sure. I left Lebanon. I went to Egypt for a month. Couldn't find a job. They offered me a job for two hundred dollars. Uh, I left Lab- uh, Egypt. I went to the UAE. I went to Dubai. I got a work permit for two years, and even that, like, it, it's good that I got that. But even like having an expiry date on my residency terrifies me, mm-hmm. freaks me out because, like, what if it wasn't over? Where can I? Where am I gonna go? My residency expired, and the Syrian war is not over. So I flew back to Turkey. I was like, I'll do something in Turkey. I'll just start teaching English again. Couldn't do it. And then I just, literally, like everyone else here, I was watching the telly and I start seeing people going on boats from Turkey to Greece. And and I was that desperate. Because, I mean, I, I was out of options. I, there was no one else to go. I'm blacklisted in my own country and I can't go anywhere. So I was like, um, I'm just going to go on a boat. And I've never been to Europe. I don't know what Europe is like. I don't know how the people feel about refugees coming from the Middle East. But I took the risk. I was like, it's my only option. I packed 27 years of my life in a rucksack and I... Mm. And did you tell your parents what you were going to do? I didn't know. I told my dad, but I can never tell my mom. Because you didn't want to worry them or because... Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They would get really worried. I mean, my dad said, do it, go, follow your dream, see what's going to happen. You've tried. It's not like you haven't tried the Middle East. You've tried it. It didn't work. Go. Mm -hmm. All right. And then how does it work? Does everybody know like where to go and which guy to see and... How to get hooked up with a passage. You go to Esmir in Turkey and you see people smugglers in coffee shops, in restaurants, strolling down the street. It was happening like crazy. I was like, what? (laughs) Is this actually real? And like you get offers... You want to go on a yacht, or you want to go on a dinghy, or you want to go on a speedboat. Of course, so it different like, prices. It sounds like um, <laughs> it was going out and trying to buy dope. Exactly. <laughs> it sounded like like going on a like a like 
Coming on holiday. Yeah. <laughs> Chill, man. I got dinghies. I got. Uh, <laughs> I've got dinghies. I've got yachts. <laughs> and there was like an offer, like if you've got a little child, we charge a half price, mm-hmm. as if you're going to a museum. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we found the man, and he's charged us eleven hundred dollars each. I was leading a group of like fourteen people, friends and family, and like people that were already in Turkey, and like acquaintances and people I went to school with. We hooked up on Facebook and we're like, let's go. We got taken to the boat, uh, a dinghy, a nine nine meter squared, like a nine meters, the length of it, the, the the rubber boat. And the smugglers, because they're very greedy, they put 63 of us on a boat, including like 10 children and 13 women around that number. And I knew when I went on that boat, it, we were not going to make it. It was just, you could see it. Like it was physically impossible. So, yeah. What did you have with you? I took a, a watch that my dad bought me on my birthday. I took, like, my favorite shirt. I took my favorite Nike trainers. I took, like, um, towels, plastic bags, power bank, headphones. I took my uh, GoPro because I wanted to film everything. Took family pictures, <laughs> cigarettes, <laughs> uh, and aftershave. Yeah, <laughs> of aftershave. course, you know, if you're like running from, <laughs> you have to have an aftershave if you're going on a dinghy. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get stinky. That was, your, that was your big worry. Oh, I'm going to have terrible beer. <laughs> and um, yeah, and we were on that boat. And 20 minutes from sailing, uh, water started seeping in. And oh, man. And how lo- did you know, did you have an idea of how long the crossing was supposed to be? It was supposed to be so because. Everything was shared on Facebook of like tips and maps and everything. We and you're knew. crossing from? Crossing from Izmir to Lesbos. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, how long did you reckon that was supposed to It will to take, take two hours, two max. Hours. Okay. And, and there's guys rowing, is it? No, no, no. It's like, an like a little motor? engine. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the people like being smuggled, he, so the smugglers don't go on the boat. The, one of the, the yet-to-be refugees, the, he's running the engine. Oh, right, yeah. So they don't yeah. even go on <laughs> Yeah, the they don't even go on the boat. Okay, yeah. So 20 minutes out, it starts leaking. And starts leaking. And you're thinking... People are panicking. And I'm thinking... We're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. I, um, I WhatsApp my friend who lives in the States. I was like, listen, I'm on a boat. Is this <sighs> in the night? No, no, it was daytime. It was like, it was in the, it was like 5 a.m., 6. So it was just about sunrise. Okay. Yeah, just before sunrise. I sent her my location. I dropped a pin on WhatsApp. And I was like, we're here. And we don't, I feel like we're not going to make it. So if you can call the Coast Guards... Just the boat was completely submerged in the water, and we we jumped out of the boat. We threw our bags away, and that was hard to see my bag being drifting through the waves on the water because it was like just saying goodbye to 27 years of my life. I packed everything that I really that was valuable for me, yeah. all the physical things that are very valuable to me, to take them with me to my potential new home. But Your I lost them. My fucking aftershave is gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, weird. And then what about the, were there young children on the boat too? Yeah, there were around 10 kids under the age of 10. And did you, did you all have life jackets? Some had life jackets, some had, um, what, do you, what do you call them? The rings, oh, the rubber yeah. rings, yeah. Right. It's an ugly scene because uh, you could see, like when the boat started going down, it's like seeing your own country sinking because... There was there were two university professors on that boat. There were like mothers. There were like teachers. Myself, my friend is an electrical engineer. There were kids. 
There was a pregnant woman. There was a belly dancer, even. There were just so many stories and memories and dreams and futures. And like, it was just, Syria was on that boat, all right? Uh -huh. And then you're witnessing, not only you, you witnessed your, your country being bombed to pieces, now you're witnessing your country sinking yes. in the unknown. That's difficult to process as well. So everyone is just sort of trying to stay afloat, mm. thinking, okay, fingers crossed the Coast Guard's going to come. Mm. Uh, and did they? They did after half an hour, yeah. Oh. The Turkish Coast Guards. Yeah. So we didn't picked up, get picked up by the Greeks, because if we got picked up by the Greeks, we would have made it to, to Greece. But we got picked up by the Turks. So not only we lost our stuff and we, we witnessed You're that. You're going right back where We're you going started. right back where we started from, going back to square one. So that was attempt number one. Attempt number one. And everyone was okay on that occasion? Just only the pregnant lady, she had a miscarriage. Oh, no. And, like, in the water. Yeah. And, yeah. But no one sank, no one died. Yeah. And then how long after that was the second attempt? 48 hours later. We were on a boat. Again, but it was 40 of us, and it, the water was crystal clear, and it looked like we were going to make it. Like, the engine is running, it was a full moon, everything's perfect. But, um... We got attacked by Greek marine forces. There were three uh, military men, fully like fully dressed in black, and they were wearing skeleton masks, and they were on an army boat behind our boat, breaking the engine and beating the people who were running the engine. And they stole the fuel tank and they left us. And we had uh, us, the young men, we got in the water and we swam and pushed the boat for seven hours until we got to Lesbos. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I like the fact that they've got to wear skeleton masks to yeah, make themselves yeah. more sinister. As if sinister. you need something more yeah, sinister to, to terrify people. To terrify people who are fleeing war. And they are... Um, they're Greek military? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they are military forces because... So they were trying to sort of cover up the, their military... No, no, no. They're trying to cover up... They're trying to stop people from coming. That happened. That right. did happen. On, and there were, there's footage of, of similar attempts on YouTube. Yeah. Where literally they're trying to sink people down. Like puncture their boats and leave them, leave them in the Turkish water, so they get picked up by the Turks and get and sent taken back. Ba sent back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they didn't come back. You m and you made it. We made it finally in Europe. Seven hours. Of <laughs> Seven hours swimming along. Yeah. Did you sort of do it in shifts? No, no, no. It was this amazing adrenaline rush. <laughs> we had, we were, we felt invincible, and we're all like, you know, when you are like twenty five, twenty six. You can do that shit. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I could. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I couldn't have done that. Yeah. Yeah. So finally in Europe. Finally in Europe. Yeah. So and to summarize this, to, to, to cut this down of how like the rest of the journey went on. Yeah. We got to the island. We were there for three days. And then we got given something called khartie, like, a, like an official paper from the Greek government. We registered in Greece. And then we were uh, bused to the ferries. And then we were ferried to mainland Greece in Athens. And then we took buses to the northern borders of Greece with Macedonia. And then Macedonia, we were on a train from the southern border to the northern border. We were not allowed to leave at stations in Macedonia. And I still remember that we were reaching out with, with like empty bottles of water to people outside at the station so they can fill them up for us and give them back to us. Mm -hmm. we, we were stuck like sardines in a train, not allowed to leave any, or any station, we not allowed water, not allowed anything. And we were like begging people to fill bottles of water for yeah. us. And we're like, we're like, what have we done to do that? What have we done to, to, to get that treatment? Yeah, like, yeah. What, what, what's our crime? <laughs> it's weird though, isn't it? The, the way that the military will go out dressed in their scary masks and 
try and foil your attempts to get across there. But then once you're there, yeah. you have to be you get processed. processed. Yeah, yeah, them. because of the law. Every European country had signed the uh, Geneva Convention. Mm -hmm. So by the law, they have to process us. And back then, um, Angela Merkel opened the borders and like people were like, yeah, rushing to, to get to their destinations. Yeah. What was the journey then from Greece to the UK? So I got to Macedonia and then from Macedonia we walked for like 20 hours into Serbia. From Serbia we were smuggled through Hungary because Hungary is quite notorious for like and how they deal with refugees. They force people to claim asylum in, in, in Hungary and they detain them now. They're detaining people in containers in, in Hungary at the moment. So we were smuggled through Hungary to avoid that. And we got to Austria, we got to Vienna. And in Vienna, people start dispersing because majority want to go to Germany. Some want to go to Sweden. These are like the favorite destinations, Germany and Sweden. Some to the Netherlands. And when you say in Vienna, I want to go to England, they're like, oh, good luck with that. Because <laughs> they know how difficult it is to get to the UK. So well, what's the most difficult thing about it then? Is it how you're going to be received or is it... How no, it's not about being received. It's about how you're going to physically get there. Right, right. Because, Just the distance. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. distance also of, also because the fact that the UK is an island mm -hmm. and your way in is in a lorry. Right. And that's the only way in. And it's really like, it's, it's difficult to get to, in a lorry to the UK. Yeah. So I made it to, to France, to Calais, mm -hmm. in the jungle. How long were you at the jungle? I was there for 60 days. 60 days? Yeah, uh, with my cousin and my friend. And you could, I imagine, write a whole book about just 60 <laughs> days in the jungle. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> that was the worst. Yeah. It was like no man's land. It was, um, it took, once it took us two hours to make an omelette <laughs> on like a piece of iron. What were the other people who were there like when you arrived i would imagine there were a lot of people who were there for months and when we saw them we we got even more depressed being like oh welcome to the jungle yeah. we've been here for months and we were like oh my god like i am knackered i just want to get somewhere and just like claim asylum and be done with it and you have to get a tent and get a sleeping bag and queue for toilets and queue for food and there's nothing wrong with queuing but i did not grow up queuing to get like boiled potatoes you yeah. know what i mean so it's difficult to i mean it's it's it's, it's just a, it's a drastic change in the way you lead your life or the way you live like every day of your life so i'm queuing for like a five minute of like a shower and it's it's just difficult it's like a it's like being at the world's shittiest music festival <laughs> exactly yeah. and were there i mean it seems like a crass question but hmm. were there any sort of happy times at all? Were there moments where... Yeah, there are moments when you find out that someone has made it. You know what I mean? So someone that we know, we, we got to know and like befriend and we try on lorries together and then suddenly we get a phone call from them being like, oh, I made it. And so that's the only time we feel happy and the rest is very depressing because yeah. all you do is trying, like jumping over fences to jump on the Eurostar train or like running for year, for hours to, to hide in a lorry and then, and then getting caught by, and sent, being chucked out by the police. It's it's a very different. And did you make those attempts yourself? I was in like almost forty lorries. <laughs> the funniest one was full of marshmallows. <laughs> how, and how did you get on? Because you do hear these awful stories as well. Yeah. About people yeah. throwing debris into the roads. It's, so it's, so it's, it's, I've seen that. I've seen that firsthand. Yeah. It was very. So they they put roadblocks so lorries can stop, and then they get on lorries, causing accidents and pe potentially killing people, yeah. which is wrong on every level. 
But what we do is that we would go on a highway with a people smuggler again, and they would go to the lorry stops where like lorry drivers stop so they can spend the night. Truck stops, yeah. Yeah, truck stops. And uh, they would open a lorry for us and they would hide in. And then when the driver wakes up, he drives to the Cali port or to the train terminal. And then they check it, they scan it, and they have sniffing dogs. We get caught, we get sent out. And then we go on the highway again, we try again. Right. That was like a daily process. I couldn't make it on the lorries. My cousin and my friend did. I felt really sad when I lost them because they were with me from day one on the journey. They made it, but I was alone. Someone came up with the idea of me buying a fake passport. And I did. I bought a fake Bulgarian passport. And my name was Tresho Anatoliev Tryanov. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I went to Brussels airport. How much does a fake passport set you back? Uh, how much does it cost? Yeah. It cost... So you get... Here's a tip if you want to get a fake passport. <laughs> All fake pa- documents are made in Athens. I don't know. It's like the capital of making fake documents. Uh-huh. And it cost me 4,000 4, euros. Okay. Yeah. And I got it. It got sent to me in France. And um, I went to Brussels. And I flew British Airways. And landed in Heathrow. <laughs> so wait, you get so you you see some guy in the you jungle meet, and you say no, not jungle online no. Facebook. You go on Facebook groups. So you're just with your device, yeah, with your device, with your smartphone, right? And you're like, I'm looking for a fake password, and someone will be like, I'll make make you one. How's the Wi-Fi in the jungle? You go to like cafes and restaurants right. outside the jungle to get uh, internet access, or sometimes we top our, top up our phones. Right. You get your phone. You get passport online. Yep. How so you, you, he'd be like, I can make you a passport. You've got to send me pictures. So you leave the money with a third party, with, with, with someone like, uh, so you, give, you pay the money for someone like an office. And when I receive the passport, the smuggler gets paid the money. It's like an insurance right. that he's going to actually send me the passport. So he's like, take two passport pictures and send them to me on WhatsApp. Just like take a picture of it and send it to me. Yeah. And I did that. And he just... He was like, give me any address in Calais. And he, I gave him an address of someone's like shop. And he sent it to me in uh, FedEx. He FedExed it to me. FedEx? And it turns... <laughs> how does that work, though? It turns up at the FedEx yeah. guy, turns up at the jungle and goes... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally from Athens to Calais. <laughs> right. You see, the thing, Adam, I didn't know about all of these things. Yeah. Because I haven't been smuggled through like 12 European countries in my life. But it's amazing what you can find out on the internet. <laughs> All of that, I found out about it on social media and like from people who've done it before. Right. And they share that info and they share these contact details and he used them. So surreal. <laughs> so suddenly you're on a plane. I bought a one-way ticket, British Airways, and <laughs> went through border control. But, I mean, my English obviously helped me. And um, I tried, really tried to look very European because you, ha- you have to, like, I'm Bulgarian, I'm not Syrian anymore. And it took me like a week to memorize my fake name. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, I slipped under the radar. I went through border control. They checked my passport. They were like, all right. Although, I swear to God, like, a, a little kid would know it's a fake passport. Oh, it's really? so Why? badly made. Because it's like, you know, when you smell it, it's like fresh, like freshly printed. Yeah. And the colors are weird. And But I think the, the, the border control officer... <laughs> gave you a break. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You must have been just shitting your pants. Oh my gosh, I was so afraid. I I could hear my own heartbeats. Because I get stressed out flying legally, let alone flying from Belgium to the UK on a fake Bulgarian passport. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't happen usually. Yeah, I was terrified. But when it it happened, when I I went through border control officer, when I went through border control, and I was at the gate, and I, I was like, 
I was I was drenched in my own sweat. I was so stressed out. I was like, am I gonna ever gonna? It's been 87 days on the journey. Am I actually gonna make it today? And then I was on the plane, and then plane took off, and we are mid air. It was like the one of the happiest moments of my life. What about the other end, though? So, <laughs> no. I'm gonna do it all over again. So here's the thing: I looked up everything, but I didn't look up what's gonna happen in Heathrow. So yeah. I did not know. So there are now, I, I fly a lot for work. So now there are signs that if you want to claim asylum, go this way or like speak to a police officer. But for the life of me, I couldn't see them. I was just like, I need to see like someone in uniform so I can tell them what I did. Because I, I have to turn myself in. I cannot like go through border control in the UK with a, with fake, a fake passport. passport. I'll be chucked in prison. Yeah. So I just queued with other passengers at arrivals. <laughs> I went to the arrival section, queued the other passengers, and then it was my turn. Of course, the fake passport, you get told that you have to destroy it on the plane and flush it out of the toilet. Uh-huh. So I did that, and I had no document at all to prove who I am. So it was my turn, and I, the border control officer was like, uh, your passport. And I was like, I don't have a passport. And he was like, your ID. And I was like, I don't have an ID. And he was like, give me anything. <laughs> Technically, I have to say I want to claim asylum. That's it. Yeah. But I just couldn't utter the words because that would be officially my first day as a refugee. During the whole trip, I was a traveler. They call me an illegal migrant, whatever the, the name they gave us in the media. I was on my journey. But that moment, after I say these words, it would have been technically my first day as a refugee, as an asylum seeker. So I just couldn't put myself to it because I'm not just a refugee. I'm a photographer. I'm a filmmaker. I'm a brother, a, a son. I'm a lover. I'm a driver. I'm a runner. But you narrow all of that down in one word, and it's difficult again. But I did. I said, listen, mate. <laughs> I didn't say mate because I didn't know the word back then. I wasn't British. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> and I said, listen, I am Syrian, and I flew on a fake Bulgarian passport from Brussels to the UK, and I want to claim asylum. And I was like, okay, <laughs> have a seat. So they didn't let me in. There's like an area where they, you can, you, people have got like problems with their documents. They sit and they, they leave them there for a bit. And then someone in uniform and someone in a suit came. They were like, come with us. I went with them. The first question I was asked was uh, if I was hungry or if I needed any medical treatment. Uh-huh. Instantly that restored my faith in humanity. My own army broke me to pieces, like almost killed me. And here's the police force of some foreign country that I've never been to offering me medical help and food. Instantly, I'm like, thank God for this. There is still humanity. I said, no, I'm all right. And then you've got the toughest security system in the world. <laughs> uh-huh. I was fingerprinted. My three-dimensional photos of, my, of, of me were taken. My body height, my weight, my blood type, everything. And then they found me on the system. They, they, they had to confirm my identity because I could be a wanted terrorist. I could be anybody. Yeah. But then they, they found me. They were like, yeah, you are Hassan Akkad and you are from Syria and you are this and this and that. And then I and went, we And we know that you're not on yeah, our watch list. You're not like some dangerous person. Yeah. yeah. And then they, I was interrogated. I wouldn't call it interrogation because interrogation seems like a negative word. I was like questioned. Because they were genuinely very nice to me. Yeah, Very yeah, nice yeah. to me. And I sat in a room with like the same two officers questioning me on the day I was born. And everywhere I visited, everywhere I traveled, dates, everything. And I was offering every detail. Why did you leave Syria? What happened to you? And when I told them what happened to me, they did say, listen, uh, off the record, we're really sorry about what happened. Yeah, I, I felt great <laughs> to be treated like that. Yeah. 
and then I was released. I mean, from the airport. I wasn't. I wasn't detained to be released, but I was like, I could leave the airport the next day, and I knew uh, there was a volunteer in Calais uh, who visited with her boyfriend, and they were like, if you ever make it, you can stay with us. So I stayed with them in Hertfordshire in Hitchin, and then I started couch surfing, and then six months later, it was my second interview at the Home Office. I did that again, same interview, same questions, but like more details. And then two months later, I was granted political asylum. I can stay for five years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been a good day. Yeah. And when you are, so as an asylum seeker, you can't work. You get given five pounds a day. But I was, I was like, fuck that. I want to do something. So I, was, I told you, I started giving talks and going around the country and telling people about what's going on. I just like, normally I was reclaiming my normality again. Yeah. One step um, after the other. Have you seen, there was a video made for uh, Elton John's song. Rocket I have, Man. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. Uh, an Iranian filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, Iranian filmmaker, he did it, yeah. Majid Adin. Uh, he came to the UK from Iran via the jungle as well. And his video, uh, Elton John, sort of, it was just a competition for anyone to, to make videos for them to sort of keep the songs fresh in a way for a new generation. And... They weren't all political videos that were made, but this one turned out to be, to, to have this uh, political underpinning because it was about the experience of a um, refugee. And I was looking at some of the comments under the YouTube video, and most of them were very positive, I have to say. But a few of them illustrate the sorts of prejudices that you do hear from people who are opposed to immigration, mm -hmm. from people who are worried about the situation. And these comments, they're broadly illustrative of quite a few points of view. Mm. And I'm curious to know if you've, if you've spoken to people with these sorts of views yeah. and uh, what kind of conversations you've had about them and mm. how you would respond to them. Here's one. I can't understand why the woman and the children featured in the video, his family, aren't the refugees. The man should have fought for the freedom of his country, not run away and left his family behind. Mm. Another comment says of the protagonist the refugee in the video oh bless he'll need a canister of c4 the police have confiscated the ones his brothers had mm -hmm. Th those two are sort of broadly illustrative yeah. of, of some of the prejudices yeah. that yeah. people have right so what do you say to people who think things like that who, who i've had people saying that exactly the same things to me they were like in world war ii we did not flee we fought we stood our ground so we didn't go to another country we fought I mean, that did happen, and that's great, but that is an evidence or a proof that you don't understand the Syrian war, for example. I'm talking about Syria. Because we are not fighting an enemy. We are, we, it's, it's our army bombing us. So I cannot stay and fight. Like, for example, I told you my whole story. Like, there was no way of me staying. And I told you it's not unique. So people got tortured to death. People got thrown into the army to join the military service and given weapons to fight and kill other Syrians. Any sensible human being wouldn't want to do that. And it's because men who are going through that, it's because young men, they are the ones to flee. And also there are families. So for example, say the Rocketman film, all right? I am, or actually one of my really good friends, and he was also featured in Exodus, the, the documentary that I was in. Mm -hmm. He's a Kurdish young man. He fled, did the, whole, the same journey. He left his wife and kid behind. Why? 
because he was like, no way I'm taking my wife and my son with me on a boat. I'm going to get to wherever I'm going to get. I'm going to get a residency and then I'm going to fly them legally into the country. Because once you get leave to remain, you are, you're eligible for family unification. And he did. Now his wife and his kid flew direct from Turkey to UK. That's what happens. This is what happens. And the other thing of like, he left, there's always this thing. And I get it. I get it. I mean, let's just be sensible, all right? Most of the recent attacks that have happened in Europe and the States, they've been committed by Muslims, second generation immigrants. The, the UK, France, Germany, Sweden, they've happened. And I get why people are worried. Yeah. I would be worried myself. I'm just being completely factual. But people are still going to come. You, it's impossible to stop the movement of people. No matter how many fences you build, people are still going to come. So do we side with the 1% of the, of the Muslims, or less than 1% that want to kill everybody? Or do we side with the 99% and become their allies to beat the 1% physically and mentally? Because we are fighting that mental, the extremist mentality of like uh, running people down with lorries and bombing to, to, to get to heaven. It's a stupid rhetoric that less than 1% of the Muslims around the world believe in. How do we challenge that? By working, by working with the 99% who want to get rid of that mentality, get mm -hmm. rid of that rhetoric. It's all a vicious cycle, all right? When the Western world turn a blind eye on people being butchered by dictators and by extremists like ISIS, they will get radicalized, all right? Because this is the radicalization method. The world doesn't need you. They think you're a terrorist. They think that you are a criminal, but you can seek purpose with us. You can get to heaven with us. We'll, you will, we'll give you revenge. By excluding people, you are feeding that rhetoric. By including them, by accepting them, by integrating them, you are fighting that rhetoric. For me, that's how I see it. Mm. A really good friend of mine, Charlotte Maxwell, she, similar to a lot of Europeans and British people, went to volunteer in the camps. And um, one of these volunteers, Charlotte, she saw what's going on. But then she realized, because she was also on the other end, going back and forth to England, she saw that even the people who make it to England, the journey's not over. Well, I, I have, personally, I have the advantage of speaking English. I can integrate. I can find a job. It's easy for me. But a lot of people don't speak the language. A lot of people come to England, and they, there is no integration system in the government here. There is no functional system. So it falls upon... No system to help people. To help people integrate. Right. There's nothing. So it falls upon private initiatives to integrate people. She came up with this idea, this app called Timepiece, which basically connects asylum seekers and refugees with locals. It's like, it's like Tinder, not for dating, yeah. <laughs> for connecting people. It's less sexy. So, yeah. So, say for, so for example, you guys here don't know how to make hummus, for example. You don't know how to belly dance. A lot of things that you don't, we don't probably know, you don't know. And, we, I, I don't, and there are a lot of things, a lot of skills that I don't know. I want to... I want to learn English. I want to learn how to play piano. I want to learn how to write a resume. I want to, like, all the technical things that you would need in your life, even if they're, they're also hobbies, all right? Yeah, how to deep fry so, yeah. Mars bars. So, exactly. So Adam, for example, knows how to make podcasts, sure. and I speak Arabic. I will, through Timepiece, connect with Adam. Adam will teach me how to record podcasts, uh -huh. and I will teach him how to speak Arabic. There's no money included. It just helps connecting people, bringing people together. Right. Majority of asylum seekers in this country, majority of refugees, they end up seeking refuge in their communities. So if you're an Afghan, you will live in an Afghan community and go out with Afghans and speak Afghan. And what is very necessary to happen in the UK and all around the world is integrating newcomers, integrating refugees and asylum seekers. And 
it literally like it's it is i think it is one of the most i mean it's as important as finding a shelter like a, a place to live and a job it is as important like a lot of people come with they've they're, they're traumatized they've gone through a lot in their own countries and on the journey so they need the support all the support that they, they can get having something like timepiece to, to to facilitate that is very necessary because i all I need is a normal life. <laughs> I have gone through a lot as an asylum seeker, as a refugee, as someone who fled war, and I want someone to be with me, to teach me something, I'll teach them. I need a friend. I want to feel like I'm at home. Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Continue. Hey, welcome back, listeners. Hope you found that conversation interesting. I really did. It was great to meet Hassan. He's a charming, very sincere guy. And I'm very grateful to him for his time. And speaking of time, wow, I'm the Segway King today. Don't forget to keep an eye out for the Timepiece app that he was talking about there. Uh, As I speak, uh, it's a few weeks away from launching, but it sounds like a great idea to me, which at the very least could lead you to meeting some interesting people that you might not otherwise meet. And at best, it could be a way to improve the experience of refugees who genuinely want to integrate and make the best of life in Britain. Google Timepiece app and you'll find a short YouTube video that tells you more if you're interested. Right, that's it for this week. Back with Rosie in uh, a field in Norfolk for next week's intro. Don't forget to check out the free Adam Buxton app packed with jingles and videos and bonus podcasts. Well, one so far, but more to come. And uh, links to the uh, world of amazing podcast merchandise. Loads of t-shirts and mugs and, oh boy, it's amazing. And Christmas is coming, don't forget. So you could just do all your shopping there. Till next time, thank you very much to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for production support. Thanks to Matt Lamont for additional editing. And thank you for downloading this episode and listening right to the end. You're a trooper. Now, am I going to go for the loud bye out here in Los Angeles, or will that cause armed police to jump out and wrestle me to the ground? Eh, 
I don't know. Take care. I love you. Bye! I think I'm all right. Like and subscribe.